Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. This is a show exploring the deeper lessons that we learn from the outdoors. I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about the way that the outdoors has transformed them, some of their most vivid experiences, how they got to where they are, lessons on flow, fear, risk, and death, and everything in between. Today I chat to Jen Seeger. Jen has been in the ultra marathon and adventure racing scene for 20 years now, racing all over the world in anything from the 50k ultra marathon to five day expedition races. Originally based on the Cedar Sky but now calling Vancouver Island home, she also works as a fast packing guide. Think light and fast multi day adventures, we get into that a little bit more in the conversation. And she's also recently moved into coaching, where she offers programs on various different sports and utilizes a holistic approach, including lactate testing and keeping tabs on key hormone levels. Uh, we chat about that more, and she, we also included links in the show notes there. In our conversation, we chat about how she broke into the adventure racing scene, some of the stories from working three jobs in Whistler and getting up at 5am to put in the necessary training for this grueling sport, as well as the grueling nature of adventure racing, the trade-off one makes between sleep restriction to spend the most hours moving on race day versus getting the necessary rest in order to make the best navigation decisions. Chat about some of the challenges of the team dynamic and what it takes to be a high-performing team in these situations, about the art of pushing one's limits and managing exhaustion in these endurance sports, the art of listening to your body and managing hormones around fatigue, things like that, plus a bunch of other fun stuff. Jen truly is a blast to talk about, absolutely full of life, a, a true adventurer. Please enjoy, Jen Seeger. Jen, welcome to Mount of Whispers. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So there's a, a lot of places we can start. I, I met you or you came onto my radar through Brent Martin, who's been on the, the podcast before. And um, I knew you as a, a guide, an athlete, and a coach. So we can go many different directions. But I'm curious, when people ask what you do, what do you, what do you say? Uh, yeah, that's a, it's a... It's a good question because I feel like I wear a lot of hats and as the years have ticked by, I've sort of evolved a lot from um, how the young 20 year old Jen was where I was just purely focused on um, living and breathing endurance sports um, to eventually sort of trying to blend the two as coaching found me. And uh, that coaching has also turned into more of a guiding role um, so lots of things have happened, um, just from purely, uh, embracing this world that, you know, that I know as endurance and, and self-challenge. So it's been sure. an interesting ride. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and where did that start? How, how did you get, get into these sports in the first place? Yeah, I grew up, uh, playing traditional team sport. And when I was graduating from high school, um, you know, we were all trying out for the Canadian field hockey team back then. And uh, my body wasn't holding up too well. I was having some knee problems. And, but more so than that, there was just this deep inside gut feeling that just said, this is the end of the road for you in that sport. And um, so I chose uh, a university that didn't have field hockey. And I just 
sort of moved my life into a whole new direction. And uh, I remember I was graduating uh, from university in Australia, uh, which is where I, I did my last year. And one evening up in the dorm room uh, on TV comes this show called Eco Challenge, which um, back then was sort of the, the pinnacle of the sport of adventure racing. So these big 800 kilometer courses of a run, bike, paddle, you know, map and compass work, you do it as a team. Um, and I'm watching this um, incredible event that's been televised um, and just, it captured me. Uh, most teams are comprised of three men and one female. And I saw this female uh, on, the on the team and I was like, that's it. Like that's, th that's what I wanna do. And um, I was just so inspired um, by the sport, by um, where these races were being held. It just looked like a great way to travel. And so I moved home after being gone for a year and a half uh, from university. And within, I think, 10 days, I found myself in Whistler. I just knew I needed to be in, you know, a mecca of mountains and um, start developing all the sports and uh, that it took to be, you know, doing adventure racing. So I, uh, you know, yeah, lived and breathed um, in Whistler, in Squamish, um, you know, the, the big mountains and just tried to find a way to support myself while getting myself into these uh, adventure sports. And it all just sort of took off from there very quickly. Sure. What was the process like from the moving to Whistler to, uh, I guess, your, your first taste of competition? Yeah, well, like, you know, you know what it's like uh, as being someone young in Whistler. Um, I didn't have a lot of money. And I had to find a way to support myself there. And at the same time, you know, um, pump every single cent that I had into like a very gear intensive sport. You know, I needed to buy mountain bikes and bike boxes to travel with and I mean, running shoes and like you name it. Um, you know, it, it's not a cheap sport to do. So um, I was working three, four jobs at a time and I was getting up at 435 in the morning and doing a few hours before work of you know, training and then I would come home after, you know, usually back-to-back -back jobs and you head out at night with your headlamp on. And, um, but I loved it. And um, very quickly, just the door started opening for me. Um, teams started asking me to race with them around the world. And I learned just really quickly that if I was willing to suffer and, uh, you know, just push myself to the, to the ends, that there would be a place for me in this sport. And so um, I just dedicated every spare minute that I had to it and to working to becoming, you know, uh, one of the top and, um, and, and from there, it just, everything kind of took off. Mm -hmm. And was Eco Challenge your first adventure race or what was your first one? No, it wasn't my first one. And in fact, funny enough, the year that I started racing was the year that Eco Challenges finished being on TV. And I remember just feeling super disappointed that, you know, here I've entered the sport and I've seen, I've seen this one on TV, but the actual eco challenge itself, as we know it, which is a Mark Burnett production, um, was done. However, there's races all over the world, um, put on by different event companies. Um, they just didn't have, um, the televised segment sort of behind it. Right. So, um, I believe one of my first expedition races actually took me to New Zealand and, um, yeah, that was a humbling experience because, uh, you know, the Kiwis are very much and always have been at the top of the sport. Um, so yeah, but I, but I loved it. I got to, you know, see just some really neat places over there. Um, and then funny you ask about New Zealand or about eco challenge story, because the sport did just return back in 2019, 
Um, Eco Challenge returned. Mark Burnett brought it back after I believe it was a 17 or 18 year hiatus and brought back the Eco Challenge, brought back his team to put this race on. Um, and a lot of those race directors are actually Squamish, Pemberton, Whistler based. And uh, we all headed back to Fiji um, for the race uh, in the fall. And so I did finally get to do an Eco Challenge. And, and that was pretty special. So for me, that was just this full completion full 360 of a sport um, that I'd seen on TV. And here I was 17, 18 years later getting to actually do the eco challenge. That's it. Cause I, I remember that connection. I remember, I think I saw it on your website. I wasn't sure if that was where you, where you started or where you got to, to revisit it. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear more though about your, your first um, experience adventure racing. Cause there's, it sounds like, uh, you you put in the work to be be physically prepared or condition yourself, which is no easy feat. Just to be able to train the body and the mind to be able to um, race those distances or or be on your feet performing for that long. Um, but I imagine actually in race mode, especially in a team with with three others, um, there's a whole lot more learning that actually happens on the ground in, in competition, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what makes a sport so unique is you've got four people uh, coming together and um, everyone's got to stay within 100 meters of one another from start to finish. Right. So it's not this tag out relay type style. It's four people working together, going through all the highs and lows um, that you experience in sort of a four to eight day type format on um, very little sleep. So you are also dealing with personalities that change as you work through sleep deprivation and being overly fatigued. Uh, you're working through nav mistakes. Um, you know, when your navigation goes wrong and you, you end up on the wrong mountaintop or, you know, you make a bad decision to move in a certain direction and um, how you handle that, you know, how you, how you, uh, how you, re you react to your teammates. Um, and then you've got this whole side of this, this ego and wanting to be strong out there. But in fact, everybody has these highs and low moments. And so, you know, when you're on a really effective team, you know how to bring people and pull people through the, the low moments when they're feeling weak or exhausted or just need extra help. Um, and you've also got to be able to just leave your ego at the door and be like, I need help. Like I'm struggling right now. Um, and that is how the best teams in the world function. They, they work together through the entire roller coaster of a race. Um, and, and you'll see the contrast to that on, on teams that just, you know, aren't getting those factors right. And um, that's make or break usually for a race. Mm. What, what was it like your first um, coming onto a team as a rookie? Like, I, I imagine that's like a little bit terrifying coming onto a very high performing team as a rookie and, and knowing that like, a team is only as strong as, as the, 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 the weakest person at that time, you know? Yeah. I, you know, my first few years, uh, in the sport, I, I raced on a lot of different teams. Um, I had this, these opportunities, um, as a female to just race for, you know, a, a variety of teams and just to really gain a lot of experience to which I just tried to soak in, um, you know, a lot of these times I was racing with people who had a ton, a ton of experience. They'd already been doing the sport for years. And so I just tried to learn as much as I could. Um, but I always put so much into my training as well, just so that I would not be the weakest member on the team. So I just knew that if I was being consistent with my training, um, you know, and I was being really smart about it, 
that, um, you know, I could show up and be, and be ready, ready to go. But no two courses are ever the same. No team is ever the same. Um, so it's just, it's constant learning. And I think at, at the end of a race, you've got to be able to sit down with your other three teammates and um, reflect. And I know that's what we do, um, you know, definitely with the teams I race with now is we, we talk about what worked well, what didn't work well. You know, you need to be able to handle a little bit of criticism and just be like, this is where, you know, things that I need to work on. And, and everybody sort of goes around and, and says it. it you, you pull out the highlights, you pull out the, those areas, and that's just how you, how you improve. So mm-hmm. it's, got, it's got a lot of factors to it. Yeah. And I, I imagine I, I think of an adventure race as like a team building weekend on crack, you know, like <laughs> nothing would, would build a team stronger than, than making it through an experience like that alive, you know? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really, you see some of the most incredible things you, you push yourself to these amazing places as well, where it's so rewarding. And, and what's neat about being on the, the team is that, you're sharing essentially an adventure. Like you want to just break it down. What is the sport? You're having an adventure with a few other people. And um, it's just you out there remote um, helping each other, doing what you need to do to survive and to move forward. And I think just at the, the nitty grittiness of it all, that's what it is. It's, it's just having a great adventure and hopefully you're doing it with people that you really like to spend time with. Um, cause you get to know these people pretty well. You have lots of laughs along the way, but you, you work through some pretty, some pretty, uh, tough stuff as well. So mm-hmm. kind of random question, but on a, on a multiple day race like this, th- there must be a real like trade-off or careful calculation around sleep. Like, is it, what's the, the wisdom around like how much sleep to actually budget on a multiple day race? I can't really give you a good answer because it varies and it varies. There's a lot of factors going into to when you sleep and even different teams racing at the top level have different thoughts on sleep. So, um, you know, I, I'd say a few things that, you know, you might take into account though, is typically nobody sleeps on night one of a race, right? We'll, we'll race right through that, through the first night. And then sometime during that second night, um, often we will sleep. But that might also depend what the weather is doing, what leg of the race you're on. Um, if you're if you're working to get through a dark zone, so that's when actually you get to a certain point, and maybe due to safety, say for being on some white water paddling or something, you're only allowed to paddle it during the day, right? Um, so that might be a factor. Like you may have to push right through night two so that you can you don't get stuck somewhere, right? The clock doesn't stop just because you're um, at a mandatory dark zone. So there's a lot of things that might play into that. Also, um, you know, you might be doing some really tricky navigation in the mountains and you want to maximize your daylight, right? So you might just need to keep pushing through, pushing through just to have as much daylight usage to move forward and then, you know, sleep when it gets dark or whatnot too. Um, but I've also been in other situations where if you are not, if you're sleeping outside of what we call a transition area, um, which is where we switch out disciplines. Uh, we might leave gear and, and pick up more gear. Um, and you don't have some of those comforts like you might have actually, you know, throwing a sleeping bag or something into a gearbox. Sometimes it's, you actually want to have a little lay down and nap in the warmth of the sun somewhere. Um, so you can actually get to sleep versus shivering cold, you know, on the side of a logging road, um, where the sleep may not be as really good quality. So mm. there's lots of things to look at. Um, 
you know, and there's things that we try to do to stay awake as well. Like, you know, using really good lamp, uh, headlights and stuff like that, that really helps. Or um, maybe three people are feeling really good and someone else is getting sleepy. Well, what can we do to help that person? Like get as much food in, into them as possible, give them the brightest lights, um, you know, help take some of the load off of them, take some stuff out of their pack anything just to keep them going to get through section before maybe then it's then the opportunity time for the team to sleep. So, mm. yeah. And, mm. and of course you want to make sure, you know, it really comes down to, are we better to sleep here, um, sleep now so that we can go into the next section with like fresh brain to navigate really well, or are we just going to make a ton of mistakes? So, um, because we're sleepy trying to, trying to move or, you know, you see it time and time again, some teams sleep a lot more and they just move that much faster versus teams that just like burn the candle for, you know, two, two and a half, three days before they sleep. And then they're really not moving fast, even though they think they are. So. Yeah, it really does seem like the the fact that there's multiple days to it just adds a, a whole new element of strategy into it. It does. It's a very unique sport. I, you know, I don't know. I don't really know any other sport quite like it. Is there like a, there must be a maximum, like it must, there must be quite a bit of lead time in terms of recovering after it. There's only so many that one can do in a year. Is, is that right? Yeah. You know, I think it's very individual. Um, how many of these events, you know, somebody might take on in a year. There's also only so many offered. I mean, these are not easy, even events for race directors to put on, but you know, they do happen all over the world. Um, you know, some people do one, one a year, others might do three or four. It really depends on, yeah, their body, um, and time allowance, you know, for a lot of people away from work and, and family and things like that. So, um, but the recovery part is a huge part. And like, even the older I get, um, you know, I'm not this, you know, I used to think I was just invincible and I would just keep racing and racing. And, you know, my teammates would be like, Siegs, that's, that's what they called me. Um, you know, you can't keep up this pace forever. And a 24 year old me would say, oh yeah, I can just watch me. Like I was just, I literally was living on the road back then. I didn't have the commitments and I was, you know, two, three times a month flying out of, you know, an airport somewhere to race. And I'm in my forties now and it looks so different, you know, um, you know, that's, half because I'm a mom and, and I've got, you know, really important, you know, my, my family and whatnot, but two, just, um, it takes a lot to recharge the battery and I don't, I don't like to run it super low anymore, you know? So I'll, I'll pick maybe one or two of these big type of events a year, uh, sprinkled with a lot of just, you know, other adventure and other things that aren't so taxing, but the recovery piece is huge. Um, and I think it has to be in order to have longevity in these endurance sports. Sure. And, and I, I definitely want to get into recovery uh, at some point uh, later, because I'm sure there's an art to that, but I, I want to stick in the, the suffering part right now. Cause um, yeah. I, I, what is, what does exhausted look like to you? Because I imagine you spend a lot of time really tired, you know, or, or I guess that's subjective, but so much of endurance sport is just pushing your limit of exhaustion in many ways. Yeah. I mean, to me, exhausted is a great feeling um, because it means I've, I've been out there doing something. I've been out there living, like just pushing myself. And it's so um, self-satisfying that, yeah, like I crave that feeling of exhaust, of being exhausted and, and then just wanting to hang out. But it's like something I, I 
I have to earn. Um, you know, I mean, I'd almost say it's like an, it's an addiction type feeling. Um, because I think it's, it's these highs that you get from being out there and, and what you can achieve and how far you've pushed yourself. And, and it all just sort of comes together into this, this one, uh, state kind of hard to maybe explain, but it's no, a good I, feeling if I say I, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I hear you. I can, I can empathize with that, but it, what, what it, uh, what it brings out in, in me is that, uh, um, there's a, there almost feels like there's a difference me personally where, um, exhausted but it's like i see the the greater purpose and and it's a very meaningful exhausted versus let's say like lethargic where i know i should do something but i just can't drive myself to to do something how often do you feel lethargic i don't um i don't feel it too often and if i do it usually then is like i just need to get outside and get going um, I don't like feeling lethargic. Like that is not a place that I, I like to go. Um, I have since, you know, I have, which is new to me, you know, really incorporated yoga now into my life. Um, and that that's very new for me. This is, I'm talking in the last half a year, but it has provided me with another way to maybe get out of that lethargic feeling. Like even if I've been sitting at my computer for a lot. Um, so versus me go and rev my engine outside and hop on the bike, go for a run. Um, especially if I've already done that earlier in the day, I don't need to go maybe and duplicate just to like kind of get the juices flowing again. Um, this sort of finding yoga and just this stretching and um, movement has sort of been a way for me to, yeah, bring myself out of that feeling. Um, you know, and maybe, uh, yeah, a healthier way for hormones and, and adrenals and things like that. Sure. What about burnout? Do you get burnt out? I, I used to, for sure. Um, yeah, you know, I I definitely have taxed my body a lot. Just um, one thing I didn't understand, um, you know, especially in my younger years was just really what stress was. And, um, you know, I would say, oh, I'm so stressed out. Well, like, what does that actually mean? And then the more I had to dig and the more that I actually had to come to terms with some of the damage I was doing to my body, it was that stress, your body doesn't know the difference of stress. So you start adding in training stress and racing stress and relationship stress and work, like all these things. And your body's just taking that all in as um, a toll and a tax on the body. Right. And so, yeah, that definitely all those things, you can only go and try to keep going so much before poof, like, you know things start to go wrong with your health. And so I've been there and um, now I make just such a conscious effort to make decisions in my life and, and uh, have a schedule that doesn't look like that um, as much as possible, you know, and, uh, and really trying to assist my athletes that I coach in avoiding that as too. So some of just those mistakes that I've made along the way, um, trying to, yeah, be a lot more vocal about it and um, guide people away from it. I, I had to learn that that lesson the hard way as well. I I, um, I was a, a student athlete in university where like all of your studies and everything is built kind of around your athletics. And then after graduating, uh, I, I got a, a, a corporate job. And I remember thinking to myself, while, while I'm going to be working full time, it just means I'm going to have to change my schedule. But 
I'm sitting down all day, so there's no reason I can't train to the same degree. I didn't understand that mental stress could could stress the body. And I, I actually did get get chronic fatigue. There was like hormonal issues that actually got affected from just layering on those those levels of stress. Absolutely right. I mean, I used to be so proud of the fact that I could get up at four, four thirty in the morning and train for three hours before going to work and you know, and then you work these double jobs. And like I said, you know, go back out again after it was just like, oh, like I'm being productive. And like, this is, yeah, I can handle anything and I can get by on five, six hours of sleep a night. But like, you can only do that for so long. And then eventually, yeah, you start to cause, you know, hormone dysregulation, all sorts of things start to go sideways on you. Um, and you, you just can't pull that off anymore. And so, um, yeah, keeping that body in a safe place. And really realizing like what you can actually handle and and what's smart and what's going to give you that longevity piece is is key but sometimes we have to learn it the hard way unfortunately mm. yeah i i think when i think back to reflect on my early 20s i'm it's it's easy to think i'm a lot less disciplined than i was or, or it's i get less done but i'm a lot more self-aware um, at least of what my body is telling me and in some way um, like self-compassionate as well in some ways like uh, allowing myself to rest a little bit more you know absolutely yeah yeah you know and, and now oh I'm just, I, I agree with you I'm just in such a different place where like you know I, I've got a, a young eight-year-old and I mean thankfully he loves to do all this this stuff with me um but I'm just, I'm so satisfied going out for like a really fun, easy mountain bike with him. Um, and that's super chill. And I feel great when I come back in and I've had good quality time with him and, um, and it works. It doesn't always have to be, you know, huge mega hours and just pushing myself to the, to the limits. Right. So, um, chill is good. And, uh, and I, and I like that this chapter too. Hmm. Is there any, uh, examples or anything that comes to mind of where you you had a big objective that you were gunning for um, that you didn't achieve or that you had to cut short because of uh, either listening to your body or even um, just making the call of the the risks are too high whether that's weather or or things like that well you know a lot of things along the way um, I, I would say one particular um, period of time that probably stands out there was um, quite a number of years ago, I had finally got in. It's a lottery to this race called the Hard Rock 100 down in um, Colorado. And it's definitely a pinnacle race um, for, you know, in the ultra running world. Um, beautiful. I mean, incredible terrain, huge mountains, and definitely a type of race course that really favors um, me. I, I love vertical. I love ups and downs. Um, and so, you know, after, you know, you submit now and, and it's gotten harder and harder to get into this, this race because you're, you don't just sign up, you, you get into a lottery system and you maybe get picked, but there's so many people now trying to get into it. So this was a number of years ago and, um, I actually couldn't believe it. I, I, I submitted my, my, uh, you know, my name and it got picked in the lottery. It was my first year of entering the lottery and, I got selected. I remember thinking, okay, this is incredible. Like now I get my chance at hard rock and, you know, to race against some of the other, you know, top females in the sport. And I was so excited. Um, but as the months ticked by, um, it was definitely, it was at the height for me of a lot of hormone imbalance. 
Um, I was just dealing with constant little injuries and niggles. I, this the Achilles issue that I just had. And I just couldn't get on top of my training to be where I wanted it to be. And I knew that if I was going to show up at Hard Rock, I was there. I wanted to be there to compete. Um, for me, just my personal goal at that time was not to finish. It was to, you know, go and have a really good, strong effort and hard day of racing. And um, I, I don't know how many, I was probably like two months prior. My, I just knew, I just knew there was no way I could go. I was just every, every training session was just me trying to work through the pain. I was trying to push through this Achilles injury. And I just knew like going to try to do hard rock was just going to be such a, a, even more of a setback, but probably a huge disappointment in, um, in how that day would turn out for me. I didn't feel confident at all. And so, yeah, I had to pull my name from that, uh, lottery and, um, or from that, that race start list and, somebody else could take my spot. And, and, uh, that sat with me, that sat hard with me for a long time. And even to this day, because now just to get into the lottery, I'll have to, I'd have to go back and get a whole bunch of qualifiers. I may never have my name pulled again. Um, it sort of has always felt like just an opportunity that's come and gone and, and who knows if I'll ever get to, you know, go race hard rock again, but yeah, so that's, but that's just sort of the decisions you have to make. And I, I think it was the right decision at the time. I don't regret that. I'm just, it's just disappointing that I may never do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For, for reference. Um, so hard rock, it's a hundred miles. Do you know what the vertical elevation gain is in those hundred miles roundabout? I don't off the top of my head for, yeah. for hard rock. Yeah. Yeah. It, regardless, it's, it's wild, right? Like you're, you're climbing, yeah. you're climbing many mountains. What, what, um, you said your training wasn't where it needed to be. How do you, how did you reference what would be uh, ready? Uh, what were your indicators of being ready uh, or in, fit to do an event like that? Um, you know, I couldn't bring my mileage up to the point of like, I was just in so much pain um, on my, on my feet. And um, the more vertical I tried to do was just such even more of a stress to the Achilles And I just found that I was, um, I was hating running. Like it was taking the fun out of it for me. And, you know, and I'm, I can push through anything. Um, but it was almost like a wiser gen was starting to come about during this time just to be like, is this worth it? Like it is just a race. Those mountains are still there. It's not, you can't go run in those mountains when you're healthy, you know? Um, but I just couldn't get the training to just to mesh together, you know, you like, or you start to start to have one good session and then one horrible session. And, you know, you can't keep the speed up. You can't keep the intensity up. Um, it was like massage. I just was needing constant therapy, all the things. They're just all red flags that just start popping up more frequently to just know that that's just not, it wasn't coming together properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can relate to that. It's, it's funny that my, that, that's how my track and field career ended which ended up being the best thing because that's how I discovered mountain biking and mountaineering and, <laughs> and hiking and everything like that. Um, yeah. So I guess that's, um, that's kind of adventure racing. That's, that's ultra running. Something we haven't yet talked about is, um, is FKTs. I'm curious if you could tell us more about what they are and how you got into them. Yeah. The FKT um, is, it's short for fastest knowing time. And it's something that's really come to the forefront um, 
definitely in the running world um, over the, the last few years, but I think it's really, you know, you see it in the mountain bike world. Um, it's just trying to do a segment of something or a particular trail or a route um, as fast as you can. Um, so yeah, this has sort of just, just come about now. Um, and people are doing FKTs on, on everything and, and everywhere. So it's, it's kind of an exciting place and, and, and time. And it's another way to challenge yourself, um, outside of being in an organized event, right? So you with an FKT, you, you, you set the date, you set, you know, if you're going to have crew or not crew, um, and you call the shots and at the end of the day out there, it's going to be you pushing you. So you're not going to have, you know, all these people around you with, you know, that motivation and that extra excitement that comes from a race. It's, it's typically very, very low key. Um, and there's different ways to like do it. Like I said, you can do it supported or unsupported where you don't have help. And, uh, for me, it's been about just choosing some trails, um, that I really enjoy being on, um, that I'm passionate about. And, uh, a few of them have just you know, decided to go for it and see how fast can I do this? Uh, how fast can I get from point A to point Z on it? And uh, yeah, it's just a different way to challenge yourself. It's, they're fun. Can, can you tell us the story about uh, any of your FKT attempts? What, what went into, I guess, when you identified it, what went into prep and, and what the actual uh, FKT attempt was like? Yeah, I've done a, done a few. There's a couple that I do sort of keep coming coming back to, um, yeah, over the years. Um, and then I guess there's a lot of, there's still a lot on the horizon and some that I need to go back. I mean, I guess the first thing I should just say though about it is if you want to play in the FKT space, um, you can't be surprised when your record gets broken, right? It's, um, yeah, don't, don't engage in it. If you're not prepared to have your record broken, or if you, you know, you set a new first time FKT on something that's never been sort of done like that before, like, you're going to inspire somebody probably to come up and give it a try and maybe they'll get it done faster. And, you know, we, you submit your GPS data as well. So people can see exactly where you went and what you did and, and, and segment times and all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, you just, you, you gotta be prepared to uh, yeah, to have someone come and crush something that you worked really hard to, to go and do. So um, yeah, you know, one of the, one of the first ones I probably went after was the golden hind on Vancouver Island um which is the tallest point uh here on Vancouver Island which is where I live now and um it's a trail that I had actually never done before but a, a good friend of mine was like um you know asked me you know she had done it and uh just as as a hiking adventure and was like oh, I think we can do this really fast and and whatnot so I the first time we went for an FKT on it I uh yeah I, it was um I was on sighting and I'd never seen it before I didn't know what to expect, but knew it was a gnarly, uh, gnarly terrain, gnarly route in um, the middle of Vancouver Island in Strathcona Park. And it's a pretty prominent peak when you, when you look at it. Um, it's, it's a beautiful mountain, but, but it is a tough day of, of running, of running and, and hiking um, on just technical terrain the whole way. And so, yeah, we went for this day um, and we had some troubles near the summit, just, um, everything was going really well throughout the day. It's just, it's huge ups and huge downs. Like you literally are, you know, descending down for 20, 30 minutes just to like cross over a little Creek. And then you just go right back up. So it's just this huge bird up and down, up and down. And we just lost so much time near the very summit of the mountain. Um, having different comfort levels on how to actually summit. There's, there's a lot of ways up and a lot of ways down. Uh, we did both had 
different strengths and weaknesses to what we were comfortable with, with exposure, um, up climbing, down climbing and things like that. So we wasted a lot of time that um, I had never been there. So, you know, you're not, you're not uh, going in with a, something in mind. And yeah, it's just a big, it was just a big day of grinding it out. Um, and I, you know, at the end of that, when we finished, I don't even remember how long it took us to do that day, but I was like, I'm never coming back. Like that one was just the hardest thing. Anyway, let's fast forward a little bit. The record got broke. Two other girls um, came out, uh, I don't know, a year later, beat our, beat our time. And so of course I find myself going back again to do it. Uh, I don't even know if that was, that was two years ago, maybe. Yeah. Had to go back and try to get our record back. Yeah. It's a, it's a mental battle. So, um, but fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For reference, how many uh, hours was that your first attempt at Golden Hind? I think that we, I think we were 18, 18 something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd have to go back. I'm not, uh, I don't, I'm not great with numbers or whatever, but there there's websites that uh, it's fastestknowntime.com and you can look up anyone sure. who's posted and things. I think I saw a short film of, of one of your attempts. Maybe it was on West Coast Trail or it was Juan de Fuca or one of them. Um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think that. I don't know if we've, if we've I mean, other than just like little clips that someone's filmed. Um, you could be thinking of, Back in 2009, I did the Vancouver Island Quest, which was going from the top of the island to the bottom. And we did make a film about that. Uh, but that had running and biking in it. And that was the goal was to get the whole island done, connecting all the trails um, and then mountain biking, the logging roads in between and to get it done in four days. Um, so from Cape Scott in the north to um, Mile Zero in Victoria. It wasn't that one. Maybe it was a, a less formal clip, but, but tell me about that adventure. That sounds like a doozy. Yeah, that was, uh, again, just a personal challenge. Um, being from the island and everything, I'd always, you know, I stare at maps and things all the time. And I just thought, oh, this would be so cool if I could link up the major trails on the island and run those and then link up trailhead to trailhead uh, via the logging roads on my mountain bike. And so I had a crew do it. And I looked at, it and I thought, I think I can do this in under four days. And so, um, yeah, I had some, I had some friends join me. Norm joined me for some of it. Um, my mom was crewing in a camper van and just friends were out there anyways. And it was really neat. Um, you know, I've definitely thought about going back to do it again. It was, um, done at a time too, where the West coast trail section, you know, was easy to get on whenever we needed to get onto it. Now it's, it's a big, you know, you got to book well in advance, but there's just all these little pieces just because, you know, access to the outdoors is a lot more people doing it now. So, um, but it was so neat. Like we were just, yeah, to like set a goal. Um, and then just to have to push yourself through it, through the day, through the night, um, there's, there's no race going on. It's you motivating you and you're calling the shots. Um, so it's, it was different, but it was, it was awesome. Yeah. That's one of the, the distinctions I, I, I see between, let's say, a a, a race versus a, a big objective. There's something like very motivating about being in competition, surrounding yourself with, with, with others, but then, having an, an objective it it allows you like a little bit more freedom um but you also have 
the the planning elements become part of the fun of steering at maps and and planning different pit stops and stuff makes that that just the whole um the whole experience is magical even if you don't even attempt objectives i, I probably got like 12 different objectives scoped out around here just from random evenings looking at maps and, and looking at peaks and stuff absolutely we spend so much time looking at maps i mean looking at fat map like looking at all sorts of angles and um and the, and the terrain and thinking does this link up or does this go or like what would that be like i mean you have to enjoy the planning element i think of it i wonder whether to transition from here to uh coaching or transition to um fast packing i guess they're kind of related what's what's most alive for you right now Oh, well, the coaching is what I, I live and breathe daily. <laughs> how, did, how did that start? What, when did you first make the, make the switch? Well, coaching found me, really. That's not, when I, that's not what I thought I would, I would be doing. Um, as, the, you know, as the year sort of, as I really got into all the, the racing and uh, adventure stuff, eventually people just started reaching out to me and being like, well, that was really cool. How did you how did you prepare for that? And how did you train for that? And, um, you know, bit by bit, I just started, you know, giving advice and, uh, slowly starting to write some training programs. And I'd had a coach as well myself, um, back when I lived in Whistler and I was preparing for my very first ultra, which was the marathon de Sab, a seven day running race across um, the Sahara in Morocco. And, um, I had an amazing coach and she just inspired me so much. And I, and I got so much out of it. Um, that when people started to ask me, I was like, oh, yeah, like I, I would love to help them get ready for their own adventures because I know what this has done for me and for my life and, and, and the paths that I've been able to go down as a result. So, you know, from there, I then I just started, you know, learning more about um, endurance training protocols and starting to, you know, take courses and learn everything I could and, and learn from other people. And so you start to pair that that knowledge with personal experience well this is what works and this is what doesn't work and you know you start to yeah you you learn more about um you know keeping injuries at bay and you know how to create a, a training effect on somebody but also how to promote proper recovery and so you just you know then you throw in the nutrition element and then even now more so it's I'm looking at a lot of hormones and like all this stuff starts to starts to come together so I've been coaching now in the endurance realm for uh, probably over 16 years. Um, it's what I do full time. And, um, yeah, I love it. I work with just every, every single person is, is unique. They're a puzzle to me. Um, you know, I, I've got to figure out what their year or their, you know, if they've got a two, three, four year, year plan and it's piecing things together and, um, yeah, trying to solve that puzzle for them. So I get so much, you know, self-fulfillment out of it. Um, every day is a challenge when I sit down to my computer and I'm, you know, programming and, and, and looking at data and they challenge me to be a better coach. They ask questions, they make me problem solve. Um, and I work with a big scope of people from, um, you know, lots of adventure racers, lots of ultra runners, mountain bikers, Everest climbers, people doing um, multi-day paddling routes. Like I get really interesting projects and, and races um, that people are doing. And so it's always pushing me to, to keep learning. 
I, I imagine the, there would have been learnings made in making the transition from uh, understanding your own body and training your own body to um, training others and that there's, that there's probably not the perfect uh, transition. I'm curious if there's any learnings that come to mind about things that worked for you that doesn't necessarily work with all clients or things that didn't, that weren't top of mind for you as training techniques or wisdom that, that uh, was very present with your, your clients. Well, I think it just comes to taking, you know, it's an individual approach and it's not comparing what one person does to another person. Um, and that's something I just, I really try to encourage people to do. And, and it's, it's not compare themselves or look at social media and see, oh, runner X is running a hundred miles a week. And oh, I need to be doing that too. Well, that may not be what's right for that person's body. That may not be something that they can handle, something that they've built up to handle. Um, they may not need to do that. Um, you know, so just that individual approach um, and not comparing people. And, you know, there's, there's so many factors that go into, um, yeah, the route that somebody's going to take to get to a start line or to, you know, to get prepared for competition or an adventure or something like that. And there's just, there, there's the, there's the, what's the other stresses going on in that person's life, the family commitments, the work, that sort of thing, their time allowance to train. So a big part for me is, you know, how much time does this athlete realistically have to commit to training? Does that work for their family, for the people around them? Um, And so we just, we make that count, but that's going to look very different, different for everybody. Um, And, you know, and I really like training to fit into somebody's lifestyle So if they are um, a runner, but Hey, they also like mountain biking. Awesome. Like we can make that work and they can continue to do the other things in their life um, that they like as well, because I want them to enjoy the journey. It's, it's all just a process. Right. And so if you're not enjoying the journey that you're on, then I I don't quite know what you're doing. Like it doesn't seem worth it to me. Right. You've got to, you got to enjoy this. Um, because as we know, right, the, the days, the weeks, they all tick by so fast. So we should be enjoying what we're doing. And so if getting you ready for, you know, some big event, um, if that's your goal, well, let's, let's enjoy it. Let's, let's make this work for you. So, yeah, I, uh, I really like to encourage, you know, and try to hold space for the other things that, uh, that an athlete, um, you know, likes to do and, uh, and make it work for them. Awesome. And, and tell us more about how, um, I guess, the, the more holistic approach and listening to your body or specifically managing hormones comes into to your coaching. Yeah, this was sort of, you know, definitely um, spurred on uh, to get more, you know, knowledgeable in this area, just based off of my own personal um, experiences and things that I went through, you know, I think from pushing my body so hard um, for so many years, um, from doing a lot of things incorrectly, um, not intentionally, but there was things like, um, under eating. So never, you know, for, I should say never, but for so long, um, not fueling my body, not giving it enough, um, you know, uh, fuel and, and calories, um, to meet the demands of training. So being in what we call LEA or low energy availability a lot. Um, and so, you know, when I step back and I look at some of these things that I just didn't have right. And I, I thought, I, I thought I had them right you know, it, it led to huge hormone disruption and to, you know, to, even to some a place, you know, where I didn't even know if I could get pregnant um, quite some years ago, you know? And so I was like, okay, like this is a, 
a real thing. And the more I started to focus in on it, I could see that more and more in my athletes. And I see it, you know, in a lot of female athletes, but also in males as well. And so I was like, okay, how do I start to learn about this more? And how do I, you know, um, you know, educate myself so that I can start to keep my athletes in a safe place and, um, yeah, give them more tools to make sure that they can have that longevity piece if that's what they're after and, and reach their performance goals. So, um, as I was seeking out, you know, a lot of help as well, um, you know, within the medical field, but in, you know, from specialists, um, you know, I eventually started to turn my attention to, to, you know, how does this relate to endurance athletes? And I think for quite some time, there hadn't been a whole lot of research done and, and particularly on women. And now we're seeing um, more and more information, more and more, you know, um, female specific studies being done um, so that we actually get the right information because, um, yeah, you know, how to support a female's body and keep hormones happy, you know, is can be quite different. And, um, yeah, there's just so much information that flies around out there that you, you know, you come across and, you know, on, on the internet and whatnot, you think this is the right protocol, but then you try it and you realize, okay, well that didn't work. And that was a huge setback. So yeah, really trying to get to the bottom of that and follow what's the new evidence and the new information that we have, and then taking that and and implementing it into my programming and, and how I work with people. Sure. Cool. And, and switching gears again, I'd, I'd, I'd love for you to talk more about uh, fast packing. Um, how long, uh, I guess, how you discovered it when you started and, and how you're involved in, in guiding those trips now? Yeah, fast packing is just, it's like opened up a whole new world of adventure um, for me. And I think, I mean, at the roots of adventure racing, you really are moving fast and light, right? You're moving with a backpack on through a whole race course and, and you're carrying minimal gear and, and you're doing that. Um, but what I found um, as I started to sort of step back from ultra running a little bit, but still wanting to be in the mountains and, and, and starting to look at maps and uh, in a different way and being like, wow, okay, well, that looks like an awesome, you know, trail to go do or a hut to hut or you know, I could do this in half the amount of time as a backpacker could go do, but I still want to run some of it because I really like running. So what would be the um, minimum gear that I could carry to still to move fast and light, still get the trail done, be safe out there. Um, but, you know, be back home in, you know, a fraction of the amount of time. And so, um, yeah, so I, you know, started just doing more fast packing on my own. And, um, and then eventually again, people were looking for something different, um, different from maybe being in an ultra running race, right. They love being out for hours and hours and hours. Um, but they're still wanting to have, you know, an adventure away from a start line. So, um, it sort of opened up a whole nother world of, um, taking people out, um, creating, awesome adventures, doing all the planning, all the logistics and, um, taking people on an adventure. Hmm. So what would that look like? Let's say, um, or, or talk about the most recent trip to, to Cape Scott. Did you say that was three days long? Yeah. Cape Scott was, um, that was back in April, I guess now. So that was the first fast packing trip, uh, of this year, um, that I've done. And so for those who don't know, you know, Cape Scott is at the Northern tip of Vancouver Island, uh, provincial park. 
And it's, uh, it's unique in that it's very flat for the most part. So it's actually, you know, a lot of that terrain out there is very runnable. You've got some great beaches, but it's not a whole lot of elevation gain. Um, and rather than go out in the summer when it's, you know, gets a lot busier out there now, um, it's definitely been discovered. Uh, I offered a trip in April. So just sort of a great spring trip. Um, definitely the name of the game was be prepared for anything. And we had everything from sun and wind to waking up to snow and hail one morning. I think it dropped to minus three uh, at night. It was, it was cold. Um, but um, we had the park to ourselves and that just made it so much more special. We had great um, wildlife viewings, you know, with a coastal wolf one morning and a, a bear, a sleepy bear was just coming out of the woods. And um, it was really special. Like I love taking people where they're just not going to see a lot of other people, right. The more remote we can kind of go. And so doing something in the off season was a great kickstart to this year. And was that in huts or what was the, the accommodation? No. So we had everything in our backpacks. So lightweight tents. Um, yeah. And uh, a lot of warm gear, but you know, I think I, it's amazing actually what like the way equipment is being made these days. So just how small and how lightweight things are um, that you can actually use. So you still have got everything that you need, right? You've got stove, you've got fuel, you've got puffy jackets and, you know, dry clothes to be in a camp and, and all that kind of thing. Um, I have a pretty um, set list of what I give each, each client and then what you can fit it in, what you can fit it into. So, um, you know, I run with an ultimate direction, uh, either a 30 liter or a 40 liter fast pack. It's made specifically for fast packing, um, which means just the way it sits on your body still allows for the ease of running. And, um, it's just got, you know, it, it feels really good. So you can still, yeah, run, hike, run, hike with it, um, and fit everything in. Sure. So I, yeah, cause that's what I was thinking with 30 to, to, to 40 liters, you'd want a specific pack to, for that to be, be comfortable in some ways. I'm curious though, in, um, let's say, what can you get away with or how, how much mileage can you get on, let's say 15 liters uh, of, of uh, equipment? 15 liters. So that would be, um, usually if I'm carrying a 15 liter pack, um, we are doing some kind of like hut to hut type trip, right? So let's talk about the Southern Chilcotins right north of Whistler um, has a great hut structure uh, in, in those mountains. And so that's great. So now you're just, your food's being provided for you at all the huts, sleeping bags, uh, in platform tents are provided and you're just running with a sleeping bag liner, um, your warm clothes for hanging out at night, you know, your toothbrush, that sort of thing, but your food's being provided along the way. So you can really, you don't have all those, that added, you know, um, gear with you. So I like 15 liters if I'm, yeah, hut to hut. Um, yeah in, in those sort of things. So, you know, in Europe, hut to hut's very popular. They've got such great infrastructure in the mountains. Um, we ran a trip there to Italy, um, a couple of years ago and it was all just, it was in Dolomites, hut to hut to hut the whole way. So there's, there's some neat things you can do. Sure. I, I was almost wondering if it's possible to do specifically in summer, like an, an overnight, um, maybe just with a tarp, sleeping mattress and light sleeping bag set up on, on something like 15 liters. I, I think, Oh yeah, I think so. Um, you know, with a bivy bag, I mean, 
I use a great C to Summit really tiny bag too. Um, I would say for the most part, if I was going to do that, I, you know, I probably go to the, not needing to bring a stove and fuel, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I do typically use a jet boil. Um, I knew they can get some nice, really compact ones too, but just that fuel, I would sort of skip all that. So you're just not having that hot coffee or um, those sort of things. And I, I mean, you absolutely can, you know, I mean, I'll go through the night on a lot of adventures. I don't even sleep. And so you're, you're down to a 15, <laughs> a 15 liter pack anyway. And you're just, you know, yeah, you got your headlamp and your safety gear, you know, rain jacket, puffy jacket, tube, that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. it can be done. I think, you know, you just have to choose um, a good weather, right? Sure. Got those good, good weather windows. Yeah. I think you can reduce a lot on mm-hmm. what you got to carry. Do you have to make considerations around, I, I guess, making trade-offs with say like first aid, like gear in like a 15 liter pack or what, what is your, in a 15 liter pack, what does your first aid look like? Um, that depends if I am in a guiding role or if I'm on a personal trip. So, um, you know, on a guiding trip too, I do have clients, everyone carries, you know, some basic first aid with them. Um, although my kit is a lot more extensive, right. And that even includes up to carrying like an EpiPen and things like that. Um, on solo missions, I will reduce, you know, a tensor bandage is with me all the time. There's a lot of things you can do with a tensor. Um, and so that's actually even just with me on a day in the mountains on a regular day, tensor always in there, space blanket, um, that sort of thing. So yeah, Luco tape, you can fix a lot with, um, just some good stretchy tape as well. Um, but yeah, you're going to have to make some sacrifices when it comes to what you're going to bring first aid wise for Mm -hmm. sure. So something I like to explore on this is, um, calculating risk because a large part of adventure sports is the the risk element i'm curious if there's any examples of any stories you have of of um where you had to carefully calculate risk on on an objective or where there was an objective and something happened where you realized you didn't quite calculate risk as well as you could have well you know i think i mean just recently last week last week i think um, we were set to go for a FKT attempt on the West coast trail and, um, our day was already booked. Um, but that night before we headed out, I mean, you know, the rains we've already been getting here on the coast haven't let up. It's been just so wet. Um, but we, it started raining at, you know, dinner time the night prior and it poured rain the night prior, um, at the trailhead. And this is out in Bamfield. And so, um, yeah, while we were, you know, feeling awesome and, and ready for this FKT attempt again on it, um, it had been years since I had, you know, I'd gone for an FKT on this trail that I typically guide and I spend a lot of time on. Um, the weather was not lining up and I knew it. I knew it that night um, as I kept waking up all night. I was just like, this rain's going to make things so hard to, to, to move out there. And so as, as we got underway that day, um, you know, six o'clock in the morning, the rain didn't stop. Um, the boardwalks were exceptionally wet, like extremely slippery. Um, to, like I'd actually never seen them so slippery. Even the new ones that had all been put in, um, I think they were just, you know, yeah, they were, they were just releasing, you know, the, the sap and the, you know, the stuff that comes out. Um, seashells that we would have been typically running across that are 
great to move really, really fast on. We're under five centimeters of water all day. The rivers were rising constantly as the rain just kept coming down. Um, you know, we had to swim a couple rivers, but it was very apparent very quickly that safety first out there, like we're going to just drop our speed and, um, we just have to, we just have to move forward safely. Never mind trying to go for a, a fast time out here today. Let's just slow it down. Let's just enjoy it. You know, keep, keep moving. Cause we got to get off this trail in one day. We didn't have the, the camp stuff, um, you know, to be out there, but we had enough safety stuff. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was that, um, we had to just slow the pace right down. It was, uh, it was a crazy day on the trail. I mean, I've never, I've never quite seen it so bad, so muddy, such high water levels. Cable cars were out. Uh, like I said, we swam two rivers, a third we had to forge and it was already up to, you know, bottom of like our ribs. Um, water was cold it did, and we were soaked. It hadn't, hadn't stopped raining all day. And so, yeah, we got off that trail super late at night. Um, but you know, that's just what happens. Go for it again, whatever. But, uh, it was just most important to me that me and, and, uh, my friend that I was running with it, uh, yeah, we didn't do anything reckless out there. Mm. It makes for a, a hell of an adventure regardless, right? Oh, totally. I mean, that will go down in history for me as one of the most like memorable West coast trail, uh, missions ever. And I've been on that trail, I don't know, 15 times, <laughs> like, <Wow. laughs> you know, but at the end of the day, you got to want to be out there. You got to want to have the adventure. You got to want to push yourself. And then you just have to embrace whatever the day throws at you, you know? And for me, then that's, that's a great day. So whatever it was fun. Mm-hmm. It was good. Cool. Well, Jim, we've covered a lot on this. We've covered your career, competition, adventure racing, coaching, listening to your body, fast packing. Um, and this podcast being about, deeper lessons learned from the outdoors i'm wondering if there's anything else you you, you want to share or, or or chat about in this topic i you know i just in love encouraging people to to get out there and whatever that looks like for them it's just um yeah it's just challenging themselves it doesn't have to be the most epic you know adventure or place or location or or, or whatever it's just to spend time outside and um just get comfortable just get familiar and um you know i think it just opens up a whole new world of of exploring and um yeah self-challenge and self-discovery and and all those things so i just love hearing about people trying things for the first time or you know yeah, you know, I, I don't put someone who comes to me with a 100 mile goal on top of someone who's like, hey, I just want to try my first trail 5k, like, awesome. You know what, you're just attempting something new, you're gonna, you're gonna learn so much from the experience. And I think that's awesome. So yeah, whatever it is, whatever, if something inspires you out there, like, give it a try. Just, yeah, find a little bit of space in your life to, to make that time to get out there. Love that. Well, Jen, where's the, the best place for people to find you? Uh, you know, less and less, I would say I'm on, on social media these ta- these days, but um, uh, Instagram, you know, or Facebook, I have an athlete page there, but it's just Jen Seger. Um, and my, and my website as well as is jenseger.com. And you can link over to that to run BC adventures or, or whatnot, but uh, yeah, send me an email. I mean, I, I'm active on email. I try to get back to all my emails and uh yeah, I enjoy hearing from people. So 
Perfect. Yeah. Well, I'll include all those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time, Jen. This, is, this has been a great, great conversation. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Tim. And uh, yeah, hope one of these days here, maybe we'll get out and share some curls together. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Mountain Whispers. There's a lot of really great listening content out there, so it means a lot that you made it to the end of this one. Links to everything we discussed is in the show notes here. You'll find Jen's website there with a link to email her, she said. Uh, she's very approachable by email. That's all there. You'll see a website to Fastest Known Time, website to Hard Rock, and probably some other stuff too. If you enjoyed this episode, please do that uh, subscribe and review on whatever you listen to. Even more importantly, send a link to this show to a friend if you think there's someone who would enjoy it. Again, look out for the, the next episode to drop every second Thursday or so, unless it doesn't. And that's everything. Much love. Take it easy.